The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and, the, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The word of the Lord. So what is it exactly that makes uh, good news good? You know, what's interesting is that uh, the same news, depending on one's vantage point, can either be good or it can be bad. Uh, maybe, for example, it is currently like 65 degrees outside. Uh, some of you find that to be good news. Uh, I, on the other hand, take that as bad news. I enjoy my winter season. It's being ruined right now by this global warming phenomenon. Uh, but we experience news as good uh, based solely on what we desire coming to fruition. So when the Bible speaks of the gospel, which literally means good news, why is it good? And could you see the gospel, the good news, as maybe bad news? Depending on your vantage point, you likely do. Now, last week we started a series uh, called Walking with Jesus, and it's our attempt uh, to really get to know Jesus. Um, often it's easy to learn things about him uh, without really getting to know him. And so what we're doing over the course of the series is we're highlighting the character and ministry of Jesus in the book, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and in particular, today, we're going to be looking at the message of Jesus, trusting today that the Spirit of God uh, causes us to know Jesus more as a result of what we hear him say in his message. And we're going to be looking at another passage um, in Luke 4, uh, what we've seen up until this point is Jesus, uh, in, the, in the narrative, is Jesus has been baptized. Uh, last week we saw that he resisted temptations uh, of Satan in the wilderness. And now what we have here in our passage is that he has now returned home to proclaim the message that he came to declare. And in verse 18, he says this, he says, I have come to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is the message of Jesus. 
And depending on your vantage point, this will either be good news or it will be scandalous bad news. And I pray that by the end of today that we all experience this and hear this as good news. So in order to do that, let's consider several things uh, from our passage Let's take a look at the proclamation of this good news that Jesus has. We'll take a look at why this good news is scandalous, and then we'll look at how Jesus fulfills that good news. All right? So first, the proclamation that we see. So in the context of this scene, Jesus has come into the synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, he's basically come for a church service. Uh, typically what would happen in these services is that someone uh, would read a passage of scripture and then uh, someone would come and explain and expound on it. This is not a foreign concept to us. We are doing it right now. Uh, Jesus intentionally chooses a passage from uh, Isaiah 61. This passage in Isaiah 61 is uh, referencing this figure known as the servant of the Lord. Now the servant of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament was kind of an elusive figure uh, the people knew that this servant of the Lord would come and would usher in uh, the kingdom of God, that he would bring justice and peace, but they weren't quite sure exactly what that meant or how that would happen. But Jesus, in verses 18 and 19 of our passage, um, he, after reading this passage, gives his sermon, and it's worth noting that his sermon is literally eight words long. Um, I would guess that maybe some wish that more preachers were like Jesus uh, in, <laughs> in their preaching. But here's the sermon. This is Jesus' whole sermon. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's the sermon. Essentially, it's Jesus saying, I am he. I am the one proclaiming good news and freedom to the poor and to the captive. Then he sits down. It's kind of the ultimate mic drop right here. Now, for the hearers, initially, this seems like great news, given their immediate circumstances. Israel was not this great and powerful nation that they once had been. Uh, they were currently under Roman occupation. Uh, their current circumstances, in addition, had been preceded by years of exile and marginalization. They, in many ways, were an oppressed people. Uh, for Americans and those in the West, often we don't have categories uh, for understanding generational oppression. You know, the best ways to understand that has to be in the context of uh, global colonization and imperialism and, of course, uh, the experience of Native Americans and African Americans uh, in the United States. These are similar, more contemporary kinds of things, but this is essentially what Israel was experiencing. Hopefully that helps frame the, the mindset of Israel under Roman occupation. And Israel, as a result, they longed for the day when they would be released from this great power, released from their bondage in order to be this great power once again. And so for them, the servant of the Lord was going to do just that for them. So when Jesus declares, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, Israel's thinking, awesome. We have poor people. When he says freedom for the, there will be freedom for the prisoners, they're thinking, awesome, we are prisoners. There'll be sight for the blind, great, we have people who are blind. That the oppressed shall be free, they're thinking, yes, this is what we've longed for. And we see their initial response in verse 22, where they say that they were, it says that they were amazed at the gracious words that had come from his lips. 
They were enamored by the words of Jesus. They embraced this from him. Why? Because they thought, hey, if this guy is going to set us free, then let's do it. But here's what's interesting. Their jubilation and their acceptance of Jesus is rather short-lived because while they thought they understood the good news, they actually had a wrong perspective. What happens next proves that they did not understand the good news being presented and that good news being this gospel would be incredibly offensive to them, incredibly scandalous to them when they finally heard and understood it. Now, as a little bit of a side note, I will just say this, that it's at least worth noting that if we are here and we have not at least momentarily been scandalized or horrified by the good news of Jesus, then more than likely we haven't understood it. And we haven't understood what it actually means for it to be good news. Jesus, knowing that they don't understand, in verse 24, says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, to me, that seems like a really weird thing to say after they had literally just accepted his words. He's saying, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Listen, you're, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. And his subsequent words took this congregation from being amazed at his gracious words to now wanting to throw him off a cliff. What in the world happened? Well, let's bring us, that brings us to the scandal of the good news. What makes the gospel so scandalous is Jesus' explanation of who the poor are in verses 25 to 27. So in summary, I won't get too, too into the weeds of these stories here, but Jesus presents two people in Israel's history, Naaman and Zarephath. Now, both of them are worth just understanding quickly. The first, during this severe famine, uh, during the time of Elijah, you had uh, Zarephath, this widow, this poor widow. Now, God, at this time of famine, did not send Elijah to provide for the widows of Israel. Instead, he sent Elijah to Zarephath which, uh, in Sidon, which you can read about in 1 Kings 17. Here's why this matters. She was poor, but she was also this idol-worshiping Gentile widow who would eventually trust in the Lord. It's going to matter. Now, the second story that's there is that during the time of Elisha, there were many in Israel with leprosy, and God did not send Elisha to provide healing to them in Israel. Instead, he sent healing to Naaman, who was also a Gentile. You can read about him in 2 Kings 5. And this guy, he was this powerful commander of an army, but he was also a murderous idolater who eventually humbled himself before the prophet and God, and as a result, God heals him. The good news was given and received by a poor Gentile woman with nothing to offer and also a wealthy, powerful murderer willing to humble himself, both of whom were Gentiles seeming un seemingly unworthy of God's salvation. And yet God accepted and healed these people all while Israel, the ones who had assumed that they had God's favor, were not. And for this, 
the people wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. Now, there's two important facts about Zarephath and Naaman that need to be, that made them the recipients of good news, right? Essentially this. The first is that for both of them, we see that religion or religiosity is not the key to their salvation. They were pagan Gentiles. That's going to matter. We also see that they both experienced forms of poverty. That's also going to matter. In other words, salvation comes not through religious uh, observance, going to church, or being a good person, but rather it comes through being poor. You must be poor to find salvation. Now, I realize that statement can maybe be a little bit jarring. Stay with me. Because there's a couple kinds of poverty that we see here in this passage. The first would be this. Of course, we have uh, physical poverty that's here. Now, there is no coincidence that Jesus uses a very poor woman as an example in Zarephath. The physically poor and the marginalized, the widows of the world, so to speak, they are often the ones who most readily accept the gospel message. We see this time and time again throughout the Bible. We've seen it time and time again throughout church history. Those with power, those with money and influence, more, most, uh, are more likely to not accept the message of the good news, while the poor are. And what's interesting is even in the case of Naaman, who we will get to more in a minute, the reason he was healed, if you go back and read his story, the reason he was healed was because of the faith of a slave girl who led him to Elisha. From the beginning until the end, God almost always identifies with the plight of the poor. Why? Because the poor and the marginalized most palpably feel the weight and effects of this sinful world. They are more readily willing to come with open hands and a contrite heart because they know this world desperately needs a savior. The rich often have a tendency toward self-reliance. Now, money and resources, we know, I mean, we know this to be true, so easily become a source of safety and security and hope and identity and value. There is a tendency to do what the Bible calls idolatry with our money and resources. There is a tendency for the rich to look down on the poor, for wealthy nations to look down on poor nations. Israel did it. We do it. We look down on the poor, the immigrant, and the marginalized. It's a tendency of the heart when you possess power and resources. And God is saying, actually, those are the people whom I most identify with. However, being more readily accepting of salvation in poverty, it's important to say, is not the same as receiving salvation because of poverty. See, Israel hears Jesus' words and assumes that salvation is theirs because they are poor and oppressed. And though God identifies with the poor, poverty is not the ultimate deciding factor in salvation. Another form of poverty is the deciding factor. And that factor is spiritual poverty. Salvation comes through and as a result of spiritual poverty. Let me explain to you what I mean. How do we know that this is the case? 
We know this is the case because of this second form of poverty that's described in the story of Naaman. Right? So Naaman was rich and powerful, and yet he also found healing. And while, again, I can't get fully into uh, the story, essentially Naaman goes to Elisha to be healed. However, Naaman resists what Elisha tells him to do, and the healing does not come until Naaman lays down his power, and essentially Naaman uh, humbles himself and submits himself to the word of the Lord spoken by Elisha. And when he realizes, here's the key, when Naaman realizes that his power and his wealth cannot save him, only then is he healed by God. And it's funny, after he's healed, he desperately tries to pay Elisha Even after he's healed, he really wants to be able to use his power and his resources to be that which saved him, healed him. And Elisha refuses it. And here's the reason why it's refused. And here's what we all need to know and understand about what Jesus is saying. There is nothing that can be offered to God for healing and salvation. As I said, wealth and power are not the keys to salvation, Rather, the key is realizing our spiritual poverty. When we realize we have nothing to give, when we realize we have no power, when we realize we cannot give enough or be good enough to earn God's favor, when we realize that we need to be like Naaman and lay down in submission everything that we have in humility, it's only then that the healing and the salvation comes. Now, I also find it interesting that God, after healing Naaman, doesn't tell Naaman, in order to be saved or in order to be healed, you have to give away all of your wealth. It's important to at least note that. Now, God has called some people to do that. There's several instances in the New Testament where Jesus calls someone to give up all they have. But rather, what's important to note is that power and wealth are not bad in and of themselves. If we were all poor, how do we go about caring for the poor? God uses money and wealth, and power for good. And we all have varying levels of money and power. The question, though, is to what extent are those resources in full submission to God? Or are they being clung to as some sort of functional savior like Naaman had done initially? Naaman had to realize that they could not save him. Because functionally, too often, We believe that to be rich is better than to be poor, to be powerful is better uh, better than being weak, that religiosity and good deeds are better than contrition and humility. Instinctually, we tend to selfishly hoard that which should be given away, all because we long for security. We cling to power or those in power in order to remain in control. We trust and our own good deeds in order to elicit God's favor. But God is saying, no, none of that's enough. It will never be enough. You cannot achieve security. You cannot earn my favor. You have nothing to offer me that is sufficient. We must realize our poverty in order to come before God for healing, for salvation. So what is it then here that those listening missed? I mean, they obviously missed that, but there's something profoundly more important that they missed because what they missed is what actually is sufficient. 
to find this salvation in healing. Which brings us finally just to our last point about the fulfiller, how Jesus fulfills this good news. Look again at verse 22. Again, it's this, it's this mic drop verse where he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your healing. Well, what is it that's been fulfilled? What is it exactly that Jesus is, is, is doing here? See, Jesus is claiming here to be all that uh, the, the servant of the Lord was supposed to be. Jesus was uh, fulfilling Isaiah 61. He was going to set the prisoners free. He was giving sight to the blind. He was releasing the oppressed. He was to embody God's favor amongst the people. It's interesting that he is the greater picture of what happens with Zarephath and with Naaman, that Jesus himself was poor, both physically and spiritually, that he was the one who had all heavenly riches and yet made himself poor by being born of a teenage girl into a working-class home. That the king of heaven laid down all authority and all power, taking on fragile human flesh that could be beaten and nailed to a cross and even killed. I mean, why did he do that? Well, there's one more point worth making out of Isaiah 61, Jesus' words here. The clue is what Jesus actually says and how he quotes Isaiah 61. So if you were to go back and read Isaiah 61, what you're going to see is that Jesus abruptly cuts off Isaiah's words here in our passage. So look at verse 18 and 19. So this is Jesus quoting Isaiah 61. He says, He has sent me, sent me to proclaim wisdom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. He stops. He puts a period there. But what's interesting is that's not the end of the sentence if you go back and read Isaiah 61. What actually is said in Isaiah 61, in particularly in specifically verse 2, is that it says that he will come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Why would Jesus cut out the words about the coming vengeance of God? Why did he break that sentence up that way? Well, it's important to note that Jesus that one day Jesus will come with vengeance and with justice, with the judgment of God to crush the wicked. The things that Isaiah 61 speaks of, read Revelation 19. It's a vivid description of what that means for Jesus to come, bringing the vengeance of God. But this is not that day. And Jesus breaks this sentence up so that we understand this is not the day where he brings God's vengeance and judgment. Rather, this is the day when Jesus receives God's judgment and vengeance. This is the good news to the poor. This is Jesus walking with the poor, that the king of glory who had access to all power and all riches laid them down, laid those things down in order to take up our weakness, our sin, and he does so by bearing the weight of God's full judgment on the cross. He does this on our behalf. He takes the vengeance and justice and judgment that we deserve so that as we place our trust and our hope in him, one day when he does return to bring vengeance and judgment, we are safe and secure in him. This, my friends, is both the beauty and the scandal of the good news of Jesus. This is the gospel. 
You know, a couple of years ago, um, Rachel Denhollander, who was the first uh, gymnast to bring accusations against the doctor, Larry Nasser, who was uh, for many years abusing young girls, gymnasts, um, maybe you saw some of the, of course, you probably have heard the name, but saw some of the story. She had this opportunity to confront him in the courtroom during his trial. And during the trial, it was a, a, a visceral kind of uh, trial. If you watched any of it, Larry Nasser, uh, by many people's accounts, was a monster who had abused these uh, innocent young girls. And so Rachel had an opportunity to address him. And in her address, you can Google and read the whole thing. It's, it's, a, powerful, uh, it's a powerful statement that she makes to him. But she, um, she says one thing that I want to read for you that I think illustrates beautifully the, both the beauty and the scandal of the good news. Now, it's important to note that uh, Larry Nasser was bringing a Bible to the trial every day. And so that gives a little context for what she says. I also put this quote in your reflection quote um, for you. But this is what she says to him. She says, The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. I mean, if that does not paint for us the visceral nature of what God has done in Jesus the beauty and the scandal of the gospel. I mean, how does that forgiveness come? It comes because the vengeance and justice of God that ought to be poured out on us is instead poured out on Jesus, thus providing us the forgiveness that we need. We must realize this, that the gospel of Jesus stops being scandalous and starts being beautiful when we realize we have nothing to offer. And all we have is to come in faith, trusting that Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary. Our hope is not in our good work, but instead the perfect work of Jesus. Our hope is not in our power, but in the one who laid down his power. Our hope is in seeing Jesus walking with us, walking with the poor. And so my question to you today is, do you see your poverty? Do you see the depths to which you have nothing to offer? Do you see your need for a Savior who takes your sin to the cross? If you don't see your poverty, you don't understand the gospel of grace. And so, with that said, I ask you to consider that poverty. For all of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, when you come before God, what do you offer? If your hands are full of something, know that it is insufficient. If your hands are empty, know that that is all you need. For Jesus has done all that is necessary for us to come before God. 
you know, one of the things that we've been attempting to do, and I'll just close with this, is every week the goal of our sermon uh, in the sermon series, but also the goal of the, the reading that I, I hope you're able to engage with us in uh, as we go through Luke, is we've asked, been asking ourselves two questions. In what way do I know Jesus better through what we've heard or what we've read? And how do I now intend to live in response to having known him in this way? Those are the two things that we've been trying to wrestle with over the course of the series. And so in a moment, we're going to be, we're going to turn to take our, our uh, morning tithes and offerings, uh, which is our opportunity to respond to the things that we have heard, both with our gifts, of course, but also with our hearts. And so as we take our offering in a moment, and as Michael plays, I'd encourage you just to wrestle with these two questions. How have I known Jesus better, and how am I going to now live in response to him, having known him in this way? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for uh, the message of the gospel, which is both scandalous but also beautiful. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, as we hear the gospel, if we are here and we find it more scandalous than we do beautiful, I pray that your Spirit would be at work in us to see the beauty of what it is that you've done in your Son. And I pray that that would encourage us to in response then live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you. We thank you for the work of Jesus. And we now um, bring to you our offerings, both of our gifts and also of our hearts. And I pray that uh, you would use these gifts for the glory of your name, both in our church, in our neighborhood, and even beyond. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.